Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. Oh, you went to the Amazon for peacocks? My grandpa goes there for peacock bass. Drive your $80,000 fishing shantag to a private high mountain lake. That's right. Your fly cannot be fouled. It's inexcusable. Dude, that would be like the world's most psychedelic tarpon. Bent! Good morning, degenerate anglers. Welcome to Bent. Here with your hot ice fishing tip of the week. Always clear your ice tip-top guide with your fat frozen fingers or teeth. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and that is terrible advice. Do not. <laughs> repeat, do not listen to Joe. I have snapped a lot Come of rod, on. or at least I've snapped at least a couple rod tips trying to do that before I, I like I finally came to what should have been a previously obvious realization, right? And 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 wait for this because it's almost as brilliant as yours. I'm dying. Come on. So even in even in winter, <laughs> when it's very cold, the temperature of liquid water remains above freezing and if you're fishing open water you always have access to that right so you can just you just dunk your ice choke rod tip in the water for a minute or two and maybe move it around Mm -hmm. in my experience that usually clears the ice right off or at least at the very least it (laughs) softens it up enough that you can get it off without snapping off your brittle frozen graphite that's my tip for those of you out there you ever just stick the whole tip in your mouth and like exhale so your hot breath (laughs) melts it uh, I've done I, that, I, but <laughs> I don't like to stick really cold chunks of graphite in my mouth either. So I don't think I've ever done that. It, it, I'm sure that works. I'm sure that one is another way of doing it. I I don't doubt it. Well, it no, it does, it does. But you know what I do more often? Um, I just opt right out of fishing when it's so cold. I know I'm gonna have to be dealing with that shit every two minutes. Yeah. To clarify, though, right? It doesn't bother me when ice fishing because that's just part of the game. It's like a short <laughs> you, you little rod. You would never ice fish. Yeah, well, yeah, but well, I I, I do though. But it's like I a know, short little I rod. Know. It's like right there. You don't have to like you know. It, it's not an effort, right? Yeah. But um, open water fishing below freezing these days, I'm good. Like I I stopped that a long time ago for the most part, and you can judge me for that by all means. I'm okay with that. You know, I'm I am I'm currently judging you. 
yeah. as always. Yeah, I figure. Uh, yeah. But like it's not so much a judgment thing, man. It's like I don't I don't have that some of us, a lot of us I'd say don't have that luxury. Mm. Right. If if I didn't if I didn't ever go open water fishing when it was below freezing, I'd get to fish like two months a year. Like the <laughs> it's a weird winter this year, but mostly winter goes on. Usually winter just goes on forever out here. So, you know, that said, I, I was saying I judge you, but I, I have a threshold. Like there's a line. There's mm. a line of, of where the physical discomfort outweighs my desire to fish. So like I have a particular it's not a hard, fast number like on the mercury, but there there's a level of discomfort with the conditions where I'm like, unless I'm in a heated shack, mm. I'm probably good. But it yeah. is not freezing. Like I fish when it's below freezing right. for sure. Right now, I, I feel you on that. For me, it depends. I I've ice fished some brutal conditions where without the shack, there was just no way you could even do it, and it was mostly because of wind. Right, like the wind yeah. chill yeah. was so terrible. But if I had my preference, I enjoy ice fishing much more outside of the shack. Oh like yeah, that, you know uh, that it's claustrophobic 100%. in there, dude. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just like the mobility. You go drill a hole over here. You try yeah. that. You throw the foot, throw the pig skin around. You know. Yeah. Yep. With with your boys. Uh, <laughs> but now that I think about it, the last time I broke my no fly fishing below freezing policy was actually with you. And I recall the high that day being in the mid teens. Um, but you were still pretty yes. gung ho about it. Yes. If I remember correctly. The the disappearing chicken day. Yeah. Remember that? Oh my when God. The, the, our, our, our chicken lunch mysteriously disappeared and we still we don't, don't know what time. happened. We don't, we don't have time to get into the whole thing, but just like the shortest version, we bought fried chicken. We, we left it. it in the truck. We bought it. We walked out of the store that we fished. We came back for lunch. The chicken was gone. And to this day, we have no idea where, the, and there was nobody else out there but us. It was gone. Chicken was gone. It was anyway. a mystery. I'm working on a script for like you know cold case files on that. They haven't bought it yet, but I want my chicken. Oh man! Oh man! We can still smell the chicken in the truck. Yeah, you can still smell. The smell of the delicious chicken was still in the truck. (laughs) I forgot about that. I can't figure that one out. And yeah, it was cold that day. It was definitely very very cold that day. But it was like it was one of those deals where it was a it was a go now or don't go at all because you were just in town for a short little window. Yeah. And that was the day yeah. we had. And mm-hmm. and like to be clear, at that time, we didn't know each other as well. So there was a little bit of that bravado thing going on. Where we were both like, <laughs> well, I, I can handle it if you can. Like, you, you can handle it. Let's go. I can go. I can fish. Yeah. It's fine. Oh, you know, there was some posturing for sure. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to be the guy that, that pulls out of a fishing trip in Montana because it's too cold. But I'm also not going to complain too loud when it's miserable out and, and someone else says, hey, it's, it's f- cold out. Why don't, yeah. why don't we head to the bar? Because I'm probably thinking the same thing. I just don't want to be the one to say it, you know. Though I'll, I'll tell you what. Between the warm water in that Spring Creek we were fishing, keeping yeah. the guides from icing too bad, and that that quote dry cold you guys have out there, it for as cold as as as, as the mercury was, it really wasn't that intolerable of a day. I remember being pretty comfortable actually. The, the whole dry cold, I mean, I know you put the dry cold in, in air quotes, but it's not just like Chamber <laughs> of Commerce fiction. That's, that is a real thing. And, and I yeah. don't, I can't fully explain it, but it's true. It, it's less cold without the humidity. It really is. And, uh, and I, I don't do it as much as I used to, but I, I used to like winter fishing used to be some of my favorite. I've had river, river fishing in addition to ice fishing. Just some fantastic days. Like all the fish are kegged up in the in the deep holes, and if they're on the feed, it can be stupid. Yeah. 
And that said, I've definitely also had winter fishing days where the highlight happened at the bar after when like you, <laughs> you, you, you pull the plug and you're, you're warm finally and you're having a beer and you look at your buddy and you're like, dude, we should have done this three hours ago. This is oh, yeah. way better than what we were oh, just yeah. doing. Yeah. Or another option is uh, you, you have that convo the night before when you're still debating tomorrow's conditions, you know, like, oh, I don't know, man, like I want to get out of the house, but it, it looks like total brutal shit and like you land on lunch in an afternoon at the bar and just cut the fishing part right out i've done that too where it's like why don't we'll just take that part out and just sleep later and go right to the bar so it it works either way sometimes there's the middle ground right where you meet at the river or the access wherever you decide on and Uh you're like starting to gear up yep and then you just look at each other and go like should we nope should we go to the bar (laughs) so many too many times too many times that's happened but uh, it is right now the end of February, which, which in my opinion is the worst fishing month of the year. I just Agreed. I just don't like February, man. Yep. And I can almost taste the glory of March. I realize early March is still technically February, but but March <laughs> is when it changes, right? March is when it gets good. We're not there yet. No, not yet. Sure, sure We're not. still in the February part. So for this episode, it's our last hurrah of trying to just deal with the winter, and we're gonna kick it off with an ice fishing report which yeah. seems appropriate. We are. We haven't had a report in a while. Um, yeah. I will say, based on the amount of Lincoln aviators I saw parked up at Lake Apatcong, North Jersey, a few weekends ago, uh, I think it's safe to assume most of you have seen uh, the, the Matthew McConaughey Lincoln commercial where he uses his rig like a shanty. I sure hope that? so. Oh, <laughs> have I ever. The first time I saw that commercial, when that came out, we were in Minnesota filming the Furhead Ice Tour. Mm. And we saw it while we were watching a football game one evening and mocking and making fun of that commercial mm-hmm. just became the running joke among the crew for the rest of that ah. shoot. That was just what we did because it's it's worthy. <laughs> well, well, my friend, joke's on you because it turns out McConaughey is actually in ice fishing. Like that whole commercial was his idea and it was all based off his own personal hardwater philosophy. Even more shocking than that, he agreed to do an ice fishing report for us that kind of explains the whole commercial sort of anyway all right all right all right lantern that dark silky mistress she creeps takes her time like me i cannot be rushed not even for a sprung tip up 100 yards from the shore you know, you've seen my eyes fishing commercial. Oh, you haven't? Go watch. I'll wait. <clears throat> Anyways, all the money I made from that I used to fund drum circles for underprivileged children in Guam and Austin. Anyhow, that I see a fishing report, baby. You know. Fishing reports rely on the concepts of space and time, which are relevant human constructs. (laughs) We are just energetic waves rippling through matter in an ever-expanding universe. We're all dead and have yet to be born. I've already caught the 50-pound lake trout that's currently swimming in Canadian Shield Lake, where I live in a luxury yurt. <laughs> but you on the ice, right? That's why you're here. 
Okay. Here's some eyes fishing advice. Drive your $80,000 fishing shantay to a private high mountain lake. Bait one single tip-up with one single waxworm on a 4-0 treble hook. Walk back to your navigator. Slowly. Doodle in a notepad. Look through your binos at the precise moment the flag trips. And casually stroll over to it. Knowing that that fish is already caught. That that fish is already filleted. That that fish is already nom 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 eating, baby. See, that's a real secret of eyes fishing, people. You don't catch fish with hooks or lines. You catch fish with your mind. And once you understand that, you can ice fish anywhere, anytime. I'm ice fishing in Tahiti right now. That's the sound between my ears, baby. Also, Tahiti. It's, that's that sound, Tahiti. I I just hope that that Lincoln, like, I hope that commercial did well enough that Lincoln <laughs> lets him make a sequel, oh. where where he actually is maybe ice fishing from Tahiti. I I think that would go well. I would watch that. I still wouldn't buy an aviator, but I might I might keep cable if they yeah. did that. I w- I might watch that. I, I wouldn't buy one either, though. If somebody like gave me a free Navigator, sure. I would take that. I think it's, I'll take it's, it's just about so, any free car. So, yeah, yeah well, you know, good point. I'd take a free Kia right now if somebody wanted to <laughs> yeah. give it to me. Uh, anyway, I, look, I am very grateful to, uh, to Matthew for coming on our show. Um, but I, I'm not actually sure I want to fish with McConaughey. I used to think that would be cool to fish with him. Like, I, I thought it would be a, like a real trip, right? But then, and I, I don't know if you saw this, but... I saw him uh, do a guest spot on Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, and he was a complete f-ing wet blanket. Like really? the dude, yeah, the dude said like four words and just looked totally disengaged the whole time. Where'd the fat come from? Thanks for using dark meat. No, real good consistency, man. Not too wet, not too dry. That was it. That was like, I know we montaged that, but that was pretty much all he said in a few quick seconds on the show. <laughs> So imagine him at the bar, right? If delicious enchiladas and Guy Fieri couldn't fire him up, I doubt me and my stories could either. So I've, I've lost that dream. I've let it go. Oh, man. He's like a guide's worst nightmare. The, the client, <laughs> you cannot get excited about anything. Uh, that said, though, I don't think you should you should sell yourself short on that one, dude. You you don't have Guy Fieri's hair, but I'd I, like to. I think, you, I think you might have better stories. <laughs> I, I actually, I would give you the, the, the leg up in that one. Uh, nice segue. Thank you for that. Uh, good stories leads us right into our next segment. And this week, our very own Miles Nolte is Nolte. going to suggest a book. Hey. Uh, is going to suggest a book that sounds completely up his alley. Lots of sciencey stuff. Sciencey stuff, like when you guys write in and say, what's with all the sciencey stuff? This is, this, <laughs> here, here we go. Uh, it's time for Freaking Philistines, where we tell you about books that don't suck and try to convince you that scrolling feeds and skimming comment threads is not a substitute for actual reading. What's a Philistine? It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things. Then I'm a Philistine. This week's book satisfies almost everything I look for in a Philistine's pick. It's literary without being too pretentious. Complex, but still approachable and fun, under the radar but not hard to find. The one drawback 
it's uh, it's pretty light on actual fishing. Rods and reels only make an appearance in the first essay, which amounts to exactly 26 pages. But even though the following 241 pages drift away from the specific pursuit of angling, they're still clearly written by one of us, an angler, someone constantly immersed in the quest to better understand the intricacies of life below the surface. Wild Thoughts from Wild Places is a collection of essays that gets lumped into the genre of science writing, which is kind of unfortunate. To some, science writing connotes boring, lifeless prose, a bunch of words that squeeze all the fun from going outside and turn it into homework. This book is not that. The author, David Quammen, describes what he does as working in that great gray zone between newspaper reporting and fiction. Engaged every day in trying to make facts not just talk, but yodel. Quammen doesn't just make those facts yodel. He assembles them into bang-in songs celebrating nuances and complexities of the natural world, from fluid dynamics and tumbling rivers to population genetics and urban pigeons to the properties of snow and how it binds together. Quammen's research on all these topics is sound. He digs into the history, reads the primary research, interviews and embeds himself with the people doing that research whenever possible and make sure he actually understands what he's talking about. But that's not what makes me love this book. Quammen tells you the stories that make you care. For example, in the essay Vortex, he tells a story about kayaking a high water river near his house with friends. They've made it through most of the technical whitewater and are just kind of cruising to the takeout when this happens. We paddled downstream toward evening, toward our parked Hondas with Yakima racks and our towels and street clothes, toward late dinners and wives and children. The water was still steep and heavy, but not quite so riveting as above. And now along hereabouts, there was perhaps, um, a slight lapse of attention for yours truly. Probably I had started thinking about certain vexatious issues of ecological politics, or, or maybe about barbecued chicken. Sandy and Mike and Derek took a sensible line, just right of center, and I must have stared vacantly at their backs while I strayed to the left. A flat rock, big as a driveway slab, had been engulfed beneath the high water, which set up a ravenous hole just behind it. I fell into this thing. It swallowed me like I was Jonah. Instantly I was upside down. The water whomped me and snatched me from all directions. I had one breath of air gasped in, as I'd gone over, and good for 15 or 20 seconds. That, to my best recollection, is when I began wondering seriously about the subject of fluid dynamics. Now, fluid dynamics, for those of you listening who are like me and, and don't already know, turns out to be one of the most complicated branches of physics, and it's not the sort of subject that I would engage in for fun, or at least that's what I used to think. Turns out someone like myself, who has spent thousands of hours of my life staring at moving water and trying to decipher what a particular current seam or swirl might do to, say, a drifting fishing line or a raft loaded with people and gear, has thought a great deal about fluid dynamics. But until Quammen contextualized it for me in the form of a story, I didn't know how much I cared. And once I realized that I cared... I was more than willing to follow along with him as he traced the study of water's movement back to Leonardo da Vinci and explained how understanding the ways that liquid 
passes through space not only informs our perspectives on rivers and oceans, but how our own blood circulates through our bodies. Anyone who's read scientific journals knows that they're stripped of fleshy narratives. All the personal motives that compel researchers to invest their short lives in the topics they study are intentionally omitted from the conclusions they publish. This gives published research the detached relevancy of objective tone, but it also smothers the context that makes us care about these things in the first place. Objectivity, Quammen once told me, is a false god. False or not, it is the deity to which modern science nods. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I am saying that it leaves science in need of good PR people, writers like Quammen. I'll leave you with one last passage that is, at least partially, fishing-related. I can remember the first trout I ever caught as an adult, and precisely what the poor little fish represented to me at that moment. It represented A, dinner, and B, a new beginning, with a new sense of self in a new place. The matter of dinner was important, since I was a genuinely hungry young man living out of my road-weary Volkswagen bus with a meager supply of groceries. But the matter of selfhood and place, the matter of reinventing identity, was paramount. My hands trembled wildly as I took that fish off the hook. A rainbow, all of seven or eight inches long, caught on a black gnat pattern, size 12, tied cheaply of poor materials somewhere in the Orient and picked up by me at Herder's when I had passed through South Dakota. I killed the little trout before it could slip through my fingers and heartbreakingly disappear. Montana was the only place on earth, as I thought of it, farthest in miles and spirit from Oxford University, yet where you could still get by with the English language. And the sun didn't disappear below the horizon for days in a row during wintertime. And the prevailing notion of a fish dinner was not lutefisk. I had literally never set foot within the boundaries of the state. I had no friends there, no friends of friends, no contacts of any sort, which was fine. I looked at a map and I saw jagged blue lines denoting mountain rivers. All I knew was that in Montana, there would be more trout. Trout were the indicator species for the place and life I was seeking. Do you actually know that writer, man, since he's a Bozeman guy? I don't. I, I, no. I wish I did. I, I have interviewed him. Uh, I've seen hmm. him speak a few times, but I... I would be lying if I said I know him. I'm just totally a fan. Like, gotcha. I've actually run into him on the streets, just like out walking his dog and tried not to be the guy. I was like, Mr. Quammen, I love you so much. I think you're amazing. You know, just try to play cool. Be like, hey, how's it going, David? Good to see you. Um, but he's he's just one of those people that I, I respect immensely. And, and I've followed his career. Like, he left Outside Magazine quite a long time ago. Mm. And then he wrote a bunch of different books on on interesting topics and then he became a staff writer at national geographic and he's 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 still doing a bunch of interesting books i gotta say though none of his other work even mentions fishing at all right and i i I know just from the some of the conversations we have that he's not really into fishing right but i still think his work is is worth reading uh and if you have the time if you're into it i think you should read it um i think he's one of the best science writers alive 
uh, and probably high up in the conversation of all time science writers. He just, he takes super deep research and he makes it both accessible and interesting <laughs> and approachable to a general audience. So that's my, that's my plug for Quammen right there. I, I don't mean to laugh, but that, what you just said, how you, how you cap that, that just sounds so familiar. Okay, because I'm pretty sure that's what you try and do most weeks in our competitive journalism segment. It's time for Fish News. Fish News! That escalated quickly. All right, before we get started here with news, I do have one uh, very quick shout out. It's rare that I don't, I feel like, anymore. But this one, I, this is almost going to be like FM radio style, like a zap. Okay, shout out to listener... <laughs> Uh, Mark Fenton, and this is a this is a self serving shout out, but I don't I don't really care. Uh, I got a nice note from him that he and the boys in the welding department at New Jersey's famed Viking Yachts tune in every Friday and really enjoy the show. And I just wanted to say thanks. And also, if you fellows have like a I don't know like a spare forty six Valhalla center console just sitting around, we are actively looking for a bent boat. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I told Mark every time I drive by the Viking facility, the Viking compound, I said to myself, "Yep, never going to own a boat from there." But listen, boys, talk to the boss. This would be an incredible opportunity for Viking yachts. And yeah. if not, if not, I'll just take a Viking hat so I can tell people I own a Viking. Okay, so we need that's a mothership. Yeah, we need a mothership. Exactly. We'll just yeah. take it all around the, the high seas. Just take bent uh, on the road. So that's my shout out. Ocean. <laughs> Thank you for listening, boys. We do appreciate it. Uh, and we got a lot of news to get through here again this week. So um, let's get going here. Reminder, this is a competition. Miles and I are unaware, genuinely this week, unaware of what the other guys bring into the table. And then when it's all said and done, our uh, audio engineer, the David Blaine of audio engineering, Phil, will declare a, uh, a news winner. And I believe you, you have the floor. You open us up this week. So I have do. at it. I do. Yeah. And, and he does close-up magic. It's really impressive. <laughs> <laughs> does he it. really phil no. does close-up magic oh <laughs> damn it <laughs> all right this is a this is actually a story i've been following for quite some time but uh there's been a recent development so i think it's time to catch everybody up this one focuses on the province of alberta just a little 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 context here provinces function in similar ways to states in the u.s in the sense that they are smaller regional governments under the umbrella of a larger federal system you don't need like a whole Canadian civics lesson for this to make sense. You just need to understand that Alberta is a province in Canada and has some independent jurisdiction over the management of its resources. Okay. So Southwestern Alberta is particularly well-loved by hunters, anglers, and outdoors people. It's, it's where you'll find some of the more famous areas of the Canadian Rockies like Banff and Jasper, mm. just like the Rockies South of the border. This mountainous region and adjacent foothills and prairies create spectacular fish and game habitat. From an angling perspective, we're talking about rivers like the Bow, the Livingstone, the North and South Saskatchewan, the Old Man, and like tons and tons of others. In addition to its wilderness and natural beauty, Alberta is also known for abundant energy resources. Though these days you usually hear about oil, specifically the Alberta tar sands and the Keystone Pipeline, Modern industry in southwest Alberta was originally built on coal. The mm. Blackfoot name for this area roughly translates to place of the black rocks, right? Mm. Like, like coal scenes. One of the first major towns there, Lethridge, used to be called Coal Banks. Between 1875 and 1975, there were over 2,000 coal mining projects in the area. But the following year brought a shift in Alberta's relationship to coal mining. 
1976, the provincial government unveiled a new coal policy that read, no development will be permitted unless the government is satisfied that it may proceed without irreparable harm to the environment. The details of the policy are kind of complicated, but, but basically the government looked at the wilderness resources they had and decided, under significant pressure from citizens who like to hunt and fish and enjoy unspoiled places, to enact strict protections over the mountainous wilderness regions and then like some lesser protections for the eastern prairies. It just so happens that the high-value metallurgical coal is located in the mountains, and that choice coal is primarily used to make steel, not generate power. The flatland deposits are lower quality and have mostly been used to generate electricity for Alberta, but Alberta recently pledged to phase out coal-fired electricity by 2030, which has left that coal even even less valuable than it already right, was. Right, 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 right. Yeah. So now fast forward. In 2019, the United Conservative Party won the majority of the provincial elections. And soon after, records show that the Coal Association of Canada began lobbying hard to amend the 1976 coal policy. In May of 2020, the government very quietly rescinded that 44-year-old policy mm. without any public comment or input. All right, mm. so practically, hmm. this Shady. meant yeah, over <laughs> 37 million acres of previously protected land would now allow lease sales for open pit mines, right? And we're talking about uh, this type of mine. It's, it's also some, sometimes known as strip mining or mountaintop removal mining. Yeah. And it has kind of a poor track record when it comes yeah. to environmental impact, especially when it comes to water and fish and fisheries, right? You can just look at the other side of the Continental Divide in British Columbia, where the same coal deposits are being actively mined on that west side of the Canadian Rockies. Selenium, a coal mining byproduct, is messing up the famous and exceptional watershed, the Elk River and its tributaries. The negative effects of selenium on ecosystems are, are very well documented in places like West Virginia and California, where the chemical completely decimated fish populations and aquatic ecosystems. So long story short, this type of mining is bad news for people who like to fish. Thing is, not everybody values fish and fishing to the same extent that, that I do or that you do, right? Sure. Many folks in the province welcomed the policy shift, hoping that a new mine would bring a much-needed economic boost. The pandemic has hit lots of economies on the chin, but Alberta's in particular. Their two primary economic drivers, tourism and oil, both bottomed out in 2020. We all, we all know how travel's going right now. Uh, and then also at one point last year, Oil was trading in negative figures. Right. So the, the province is scrambling to find ways to get money coming in again. But then some other Albertans have been, shall we say, less enthusiastic about this policy change, which spurred, quote, unprecedented civil protests, according to a local paper. And we're not just talking about like conservationists and anglers and, and hippie types. The hunting and ranching communities have also rallied against this change. Even the, the popular Lethbridge-based country singer, Corb Lund, publicly condemned the whole thing. Opposition pressure grew steadily throughout 2020, and in December of last year, the Alberta government issued a very, very public statement, canceling 11 of the coal leases they had opened up, which was a really nice PR move. And, and they made a point of noting in all their press releases that they made this decision in response to public outcry. There's just one problem. 
the 11 leases they canceled made up about 4,400 acres. So less than half of 1% of the area they opened up when they initially uh, rescinded the coal policy. Thanks, guys. So, you know, yeah, yeah it made good press. <laughs> I wouldn't call it meaningful, and it didn't succeed in quelling the general unrest from local opposition. One of the primary groups leading that opposition is the Alberta chapter of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, who are co-signatories of a lawsuit that seeks to fully reinstate the previously held environmental protections and claims that the current government violated the law when they made the unilateral change. The final decision on that lawsuit is still pending, but in the wake of last month's trial, the Alberta government put out another very public announcement claiming that they had heard the opposition loud and clear and were reinstating the 1976 coal policy. Now that all sounds well and good. Yeah. Again, the devil's in details here. During the nine months that the coal policy was undone, Australian mining companies were granted six new leases, meaning that just over 1.2 million acres of land along the eastern slopes of the Canadian Rockies is now open to coal mining. Though the Alberta government did reinstate their pre-existing policy, they did not rescind the leases that they had granted in that nine-month period. Wait a minute. Exactly. I'm trying to. I'm trying to like compute all that. So, well, so they, like they 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 took away the protections for yeah. nine months, and during those nine months, they were giving out leases. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got that. But got what's, what's happening is like, hey, we're gonna go back to the way it was, but the people we said yes to when before that, they they can still do their thing. Right. And so, from all the coverage I read on this issue, which is a lot, it seems like the government of Alberta is prioritizing the desires of the coal lobby and Australian coal companies over their fish, wildlife, and, you know, most importantly, their citizens, while trying their damnedest to play damage control when talking to the press. The the reinstatement of the coal policy was a step in the right direction. I'm, I'm giving them credit there. But the fisheries in this part of Canada, they're, they're still in, in trouble, right? They're still in jeopardy from yeah. what's been enacted. I want to kind of close this off by, by encouraging all of our listeners north of the border, especially those in Alberta, to read up on this situation and pay attention. Like, do your own homework. Don't just take my word for it. If you're so inclined, contact the appropriate MPs and also consider joining the Alberta chapter of BHA because they're the ones who are working really, really hard to represent the interests of everyone who likes to fish and hunt and play outside in the mountains of, of southwestern Alberta. And they're the ones who are helping to bring this lawsuit forward. So I would talk to those folks because they're doing they're doing really good work. And this one, this this really does threaten some great fisheries. So just to clarify one thing, so they rescinded that that decision. So like they're, the, the government is essentially saying, we'll take it back to how it was when the protections were in place. But what, like moving forward? So like going forward, we won't sell any more leases, but these, these Australian now. dudes are already in? For now. For now. The Australia, the, yes, the, the leases that they gave out in those nine months are standing, and, and roads are being built. Test drilling is going on in places where it didn't happen before, and those are moving ahead. Also, right now, that original policy is back in place, but the government is crafting a new policy, and no one knows what that's going to be yet. So okay. there's a lot that's still up in the air with how how this is going to play out moving forward. And and look, I get it. Like there there is there's some real there are some real issues economically going on in that area. But from yeah. everything I read, and I didn't have time to cover all this because it's a really deep dive, but. It's a, it's a very short-sighted move, 
and it doesn't look like these coal resources are actually going to bring as much money into the local economy as is being promised, and it, not for very long. Yeah, it's a super detailed story, and I, I'm not as fluent in all the details as you are, but that's sort of, of my takeaway is that, um, you know, it is a very short-term gain, and then, I don't know, man, history kind of shows that if, if you don't fully backpedal and, like, make the whole thing go away, like, once you let a little bit in, you you tend to be on the track to have it keep going that way, especially if they get their economic, their, their uh the money flow in, yeah, exactly. They get the boost. Yep. It's going to be very hard to go back without that being gone. So yeah. I'm sure we'll uh, we'll have follow up on that one down the road because that's. A I, big I issue. hope I get to follow up at some point and say like, "Hey, the 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 lawsuit dead. succeeded yeah. and the whole thing's dead." We'll see where yeah. it goes. Yeah. Well, speaking of dead dead stuff, um, <laughs> my first story this week is not is not a whole lot more uplifting. And you know me. Like I go if it involves Deion Sanders or fishing with Doritos, I'm automatically in. But I'm. I'm going to end at the Spencer Gifts. I can't start there. I got to go to Hudson News. And um, I don't think any person living in the U.S. has has missed the coverage of the polar vortex that plummeted uh, much of the country into a deep freeze. You lived it. We kind of skated it a little bit out here in Jers, but you, you, it was cold. You got the cold. It's been, it's, it was cold there for a while. Yeah, it was real cold. <laughs> it was extremely yeah, cold. It's cold. Uh, but, um, you know, our poor friends in Texas – we're suffering through this from ongoing power outages, lack of, of potable water, and so on. And, um, you know, the thing is, while these brutal temps and weather have, have made people in a huge part of the country suffer, if you look at it from a fishing perspective, meaning how much does this period of extreme cold matter to anglers, it, it's, it's not going to affect, you know, many places long run. But Texas uh, is, is one exception to that, particularly along the coast. Now, I've spent a lot of time fishing down on the Texas coast. It's one of my favorite places but um, yeah, it's it's awesome. What you have to bear in mind, though, is that what makes it so great is the coastwide network of these shallow bays and, and estuaries that grow arguably the biggest sea trout in the U.S. And they've got redfish and all kinds of other stuff. But Texas is big trout country. And what happens is when these temps drop so drastically, so quickly, the fish in these shallow systems, they don't have time to make a big move like offshore into the Gulf. And, and the result is, uh, you know, can be massive fish kills. And, and tech, the Texas coast is sadly seeing some of that now. Um, Texas Parks and Wildlife has already gotten reports of some level of fish kill in, in five of the major bay systems. Uh, they're seeing loads of dead sea trout, redfish, among other things, washed up on the beaches, and um, huge rescue effort on sea turtles down there, too, because they're endangered. So they have all mm -hmm. these stunned, stunned turtles. And... Um, I'll tell you what, man, I got a lot of buddies down there, and a few of them reached out just prior to that freeze, and they were like, dude, pray for us. And they're saying that because while there's a lot of chatter wrapped up in the news about how this polar vortex deal is an effect of global warming, right, it, it is fair to, to, to say that this kind of deep freeze in, in South Texas is not unprecedented. Like, it has happened before, uh, most notably in 1983 and 1989, and, and one of my buddies I fished down there with, Darren Jones, he remembers the 83 freeze vividly, which created one of the worst fish kills in U.S. history. And according to him, it, it ultimately took like four years for the whole trout fishery to really start recovering from that. Um, now, he had told me ahead of this freeze, certain areas on the coast, at least they had done things like shut down barge traffic in the intercoastal waterway to give fish some kind of deep water refuge to hide out in. And then Texas uh, Parks and Wildlife closed all saltwater fishing on, this was Monday, February 15th through Tuesday, February 16th. And they did this so that anglers 
And it's, it's like hard to believe that people would even think this way, what they do. They did it so that anglers wouldn't swarm these deep water holding areas and pound these fish that were barely hanging on. Like you can get into a situation. Really? Yeah, that was part of it. I mean, part of it is so that, you know, just give the, the, the fish a break during this freeze. Yeah. But hands down, another motivation is like, it's like, yo, we know all the trout are going to be right here because of this freeze. So part of that shutdown was to stop people from going to these holes where these in this shallow system where people know these fish are going to congregate and just beating the shit out of them, right? It's like shooting fish oh, in a barrel. Yeah. So that's that is part of the the motivation there. And you would think, right, that all Texas anglers would just rally behind that. But then I, I ended up finding this story out of Corpus Christi about all these pier anglers that were hurrying out right before the freeze to like get their last licks in. And they were saying that, you know, they can't wait for this closure to lift so they can get right back out there. And what's going to be interesting is sort of how the Texas angling community at large accepts what many are speculating could be some pretty drastic regulation changes because of this freeze. Yeah. As a matter of fact, our colleague, Maggie Hudlow, recently covered what's going on in Texas for TheMeatEater.com in a story titled, Texas Freeze Kills Thousands of Fish Along Gulf Coast. And she did a really great job. And in that piece, she actually quotes a few captains. And, and what these guys are saying is, listen, even though this fishing ban will be lifted, by now I'm pretty sure it already is, um, it might be smart to like not even go ripping around the bays in our boats at all for a while, you know, just to give the fish a chance to get over that trauma. You know, don't stress them more than they've already been. And uh, per Maggie's story, there, there's some talk, I don't know how serious, of dropping the trout limit to zero and banning all tournaments for the rest of the year. And Damn. yeah, and one so one final note on this, right? Um, it's being hinted at that while this recent freeze is definitely hurting fish and wildlife populations along the, the South Texas coast, a lot of officials are anticipating that this won't be quite as bad as 83 and 89, especially with, you know, temps have already come back up. Um, and I also read that the cooling of the bays this time, it happened a little bit more slowly than in those past cold snaps. So, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping for the best, but we got to wait it out. And as a recreational guy, I think you, I know you too. If it was a no-kill season, I'd fully embrace that. It would make sense to me. Like, yo, if not killing trout the rest of this season helps this population, I'm in. But, you know, getting back to the economy, you do have to remember yeah. people go to Texas for trout, and there yeah. are lodges up and down that entire coast that have already been hurt by COVID, and now this. So it's a massive double whammy. And to be clear, nobody has made a call on regulations yet. It's just being speculated and talked about that that could be an option depending on like sort of the final assessment of how hard this freeze hurt the base system down there. That's a tough one, man. I mean, there are a lot of people who make their living off of being able to guide for yeah. harvesting those trout. Like that's that's what their their clients are there to do. You yeah. know? And 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 I feel for those folks. I really do. And and you also have to balance the long-term health of the fishery and understand that the hammering on them right now might mean you don't get to catch them or have a sustainable fishery in the long term. Yeah, and what's what what I think is even tougher is even if you if you take the 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 kill regulations out. Like let's just let's just say that uh, you know either nothing changes or you know they they put the kill regulations in um you know the freezes like this have happened in Florida where we saw you know piles yeah. and piles of dead snook and stuff. Um the, the big difference, even if you're you're not a, going down there to, to keep trout, you're just going to catch and release and catch the trophy trout, 
down there. If the population gets hurt, now it's making that very difficult. That's going to hurt business too. And unlike Florida, there's really not a ton of plan B in Texas. Like you're no. going there to fish skinny water bay systems for trout yep. and reds. Yep. If those two things aren't an option, most guys don't have the boats or aren't in the right area to just be like, well, we'll zip off and catch snapper or whatever is right. Like that's what you go there for. There's there's not a lot of plan B. So regardless of the regulations, even if this is just knock back the trout fishing for a year, that sucks. And that's a tough situation for the people that make their money doing it. So. It is. And and I, I do genuinely feel for friends of mine who make their living guiding yeah. down there and fishing down there. And that, yeah, our, I'll say our hearts go out, certainly not thoughts and prayers, but our hearts go out to everybody down there who's, uh, who's there, there is no winning in this. There's no good answer. It's all no. shitty. No, it's and it's all just going to take time to to assess, you yeah. know. So, we'll see where we land. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land? Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today because trust me there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids with over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. I'm going to run with that. I'm going to take your, your dead fish angle. Okay. I'm going to parlay that into into what I'm going to talk about. And for this the second story, I'm going to dip into the the nearly bottomless pool of invasive species stories out of Florida. Ooh. From this, it seems like there might be 
a new one, but I don't really think so. But anyway, oh, we'll, we'll, I, I know we'll where you're going, there. and I'm excited. You know where I'm, I'm going, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. An arapaima was recently found washed up dead on the banks of the Caloosahatchee River. Arapaima are Amazonian fish that can grow up to 10 feet long and over 400 pounds. I found conflicting information on this. Some people say they're the largest freshwater fish. Some people say they're among the largest freshwater fish. Right. I don't know if anybody's figured that out. Either way, they're enormous. They're just huge. And either way, it costs a lot less to fly to, to Florida than it does to the Amazon <laughs> to catch them. So, yes, booyah. <laughs> and, and to your point, dude, they're, they're kind of... They're kind of the newest exotic destination sport fish. Yes. Anglers only really started targeting them for sport, what, like five years ago? Maybe yeah, six and now or seven? it's like, oh, you went to the Amazon for peacocks? Like, <laughs> you're not going down there for lame. Arapaima. Yeah, lame. My grandpa goes there for peacock yeah. bass. Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of a sudden, literally just within <laughs> the last few years, everybody I know now has dreams of going to Guiana one day and sight fishing these 300-pound monsters. And yeah. Just a few years ago, no one even knew they existed. Anyway, uh, if, if you want to know more about all that, I personally recommend the short film Jungle Fish. You can, you can get it for free on the YouTubes. Go check it out. Anyway, cool as these fish are, and as much as I want to fish for them, that's not what we're talking about here because they're not supposed to be swimming around in Florida rivers. Right? Yeah. You, you can imagine the amount of damage that they might do if they invaded an ecosystem where they don't belong for how big and, and voracious as they are. Yeah. But... A Cape Coral resident recently stumbled on a five and a half foot long specimen washed up dead on the banks of Caloosahatchee. And, you know, for some that's concerning, right? Because the, the, the question is, is where did it come from? Most likely, this was a case of someone dumping an unwanted pet and that pet continued to grow. But the Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, they, they did a risk assessment because they, they saw lots of people dump invasive stuff all over Florida and they have these as, as tank fish, right? So I, I, FWC, yeah, I was going to say, all of Miami, like that's all, all those that's all they are. That's, yeah, yeah. that's where it all came from, yeah. And, and FWC's hip to that. So they did a risk assessment like a decade ago, which concluded that Florida waters are too cold to support Arapaima. So that's why this is such a big deal. FWC came out 10 years ago and was like, they can't live here, don't worry. And then this big, giant, mature one washed up dead. yeah. And there, there's some folks saying like, well, with the general warming trends the past 10 years, maybe maybe it's happening, right? And and that's why this story popped up in, in a bunch of different sources. Like you'd heard about it. I'd heard about it. And and I got to say, some of them were just, just the worst clickbait headlines. I, and I'm, I don't want to get too far off, but the, the worst one I saw was <laughs> citizens of Florida, meet your new river monster overlords. Like, gee, thanks, Orlando <laughs> Weekly. Those guys deserve a Pulitzer. <laughs> and the angle that almost all those stories took was that, like, what if this was a wild fish and what if they're reproducing? And, man, I got to say, like, I don't buy it. I, I, I don't okay. think that's what happened. I think I think this fish was released. It grew up and died. It's still something that people, like, you know, don't dump the fish. We all know that. Blah, 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 blah. But there's one angle of this story that no one seems to be talking about. And that's what I want to talk about. If you look at the photos of the dead fish... You can clearly see a hook in its lower jaw. Oh, really? Oh, someone's I that. got a story to tell, right? Exactly. No one talked about it, but if you look, go look at the photos. There is a hook, a busted-off fishing hook in the lower jaw of that fish. Someone hooked and fought an arapaima in the Caloosahatchee, dude. Imagine that. Oh, dude, you just like M Night Shyamalan this whole news piece <laughs> and just took us in a totally different direction. The like, new angle we. 
We want the exclusive. You come to us first. Exactly. Exactly. You want stickers? We got them. Imagine how shocked that angler was. Because you know this, I know. Arapaima are jumpers. So there's a good chance that whoever hooked that fish saw it. Yeah, and, and they, they and they probably maybe saw they mistook thought, it for a tarpon. I was gonna say they saw it and thought it was a tarpon because I have to imagine, right? Like if that happened to you or me, I'd be telling the world, like you're gonna tell me I'm crazy, but I <laughs> yeah. jumped a f-ing arapaima today <laughs> down by Cape Carl. Okay, but, dude, uh, I get okay. Maybe you thought it was a tarpon, but that would be like the world's most psychedelic tarpon. Right. Yeah. Think about they've got all those red accents and crazy oh, yeah. colors all over their scales. I don't know how you could fuse that for a tarpon. Like that thing jumps and and either either that person was just way too high and they're like, no, nah, man, I couldn't have just seen what I thought I just saw. <laughs> or they had no idea what they were looking at. I don't know what it was, but I, I just wish whoever had battled that fish would come forward and tell their story because that's the person I want to hear from on this. I would love it. I would love it. I, I I don't know, but I'm going with the latter. Somebody hooked it, and either it didn't jump, or they didn't see it, or yeah. just had absolutely no idea what they were looking at. But uh, anybody who thinks that's a wild fish, wild meaning what? It swam on up from the Amazon, like went out the mouth of the Amazon. No, and no, swam no, 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 no. Like 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 wild is in it, it, they're naturally reproducing there, not not oh. native, not wild is in it got there on its own. Like someone dumped them in, and and they are successfully reproducing. I I don't buy it. You can't no. You, you can't you can't necessarily rule it out, but until somebody else catches another one or nets another one, like you have to go with that. It's a one off. They're, they're until, obligate air breathers. They don't hide very well. Exactly. They have to come to the surface to breathe, so you see them. Exactly. But I am very very intrigued by the hook. <laughs> I, I imagine too. in the I imagine in a tank like at a, like like a like a Tony Montana's kind of house. You know what I'm saying? Totally. Like somebody's totally. got to have a big ass tank, or that <laughs> thing was in there for a very very long time, growing in the canal way. Yeah. Oh man. Anyway, okay. Um, how about this? So, if you were to be that guy to land that fish, you would establish some serious dominance. You would it would be dom- Damn right. dominance established in fishing, right? So we we talked some serious shop. Now I got to have a little fun, and um, I'm going to make the assumption that everyone listening right now, no matter how humble you are, okay, all of you enjoy establishing your dominance on the water from time to time, right? Like you yeah. might not glo- you might not gloat about it. Right, but on those days when you're just like putting on a clinic and crushing your boys, you love it. And no matter how you react, you can go full asshole mode, or you can do the like, I'm going to stop fishing and get you dialed. You know what I mean, like, bro. Let me. Uh huh. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's like the that's, nice. That's kind of the ultimate form of dominance. That, like, hold yeah, on, let hold me on. help you. Let me slide your indicator up a little bit and just watch <laughs> what I'm doing here. Okay. Uh, it, it doesn't matter. You're loving it, right? So this, this is a little story that comes uh, from New York's Times Herald record. And it's about 24-year-old Hayden Carnell, who recently fished the annual King of the Ice tournament on White Lake. Now, mind you, hundreds of people fished this tournament, right? So the tournament started at 6 a.m. In the first 15 minutes before the sun even comes up, uh, Carnell sticks an 8.2-pound walleye, and he and his buds are using flashlights to land it because it is still completely dark. So let's pause there and now pretend you and your buddies have just arrived to compete for the King of the Ice title, okay? And as you're dragging your sled out in the morning dark, little do you know, Carnell is walking his walleye to weigh in, right? And he was the first to weigh a fish, and as he noted in the story, was doing so while the vast majority of other anglers were just starting to set up, okay? (laughs) So now, furthermore, furthermore, 
Carnell and his buddies, as I understand the story, they planned to go ice fishing that day, but only decided that morning to enter the tournament. So they got up and they were like, hey, we should enter this and swung by the local fire station at 5 a.m. that morning to register. And by 6.15, Carnell had caught the winning fish. Hundreds of anglers. <laughs> Yet this, this Wally dominated the event, and he was crowned the 36th annual King of the Ice. And like that, that is a Lance V power move. Right That's there. some serious flexing right there. Okay. Now, further still, still further, furthermore again, Carnell and his friends, apparently they fish a lot of open water tournaments, but they were all canceled this year due to COVID. So this was their first ice tournament ever. <laughs> and he says, <laughs> and he says, um, I think we'll be back. We're hooked. Yeah, you think? Mm -hmm. And there's this great photo in the piece of Carnell holding up this walleye um, behind hundreds of crappies and perch and trout that were also weighed in. And like his walleye could have, have eaten pretty much any of them. So I was just tickled by this whole thing. Like that is the ultimate totally flex and dominance establishment right there. Good on you, kid. What I wish though, is that because you're never going to top that. I wish you had just done a mic drop and been like, yes. And I now retire as the King and will never fish another ice tournament again. Cause within an hour I proved my dominance. Like you're never yeah. going to get there again. Just, just drop that mic and walk away, dude. <laughs> Or weigh, the it in just, or weigh it in and pack your shit with your boys and go home and drink. Just leave. Exactly. Just I, be uh, done. I think. I think. I think. I've. Uh, I think. I got th this ice tournament thing is just too easy. I think I'm gonna stick to open water tournaments. You guys can have that. Good for him. I don't think anybody's ever ever entered a fishing tournament where they didn't see it going down that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So we had to, we had to close with a little fun. Uh, Hayden, good for you. Um, we'll see which one of these pieces Phil had the most fun with or was most gripped by. This week, and as soon as we're done hearing from him, we're going to get a tackle hack that will also help you establish more dominance in the tarpon scene from uh, none other than Mr. Dave Mangum. This has been one of the closest weeks so far, but they don't pay me unless I pick a winner. So I'm going to go with Miles Nolte. Congratulations. <laughs> that last ice fishing story kind of reminded me of the story of this podcast. Steven Ranella came up to you guys and said, hey, you guys want to start a podcast? And you said, what's a podcast? And now two out of two moms surveyed said it's the best podcast they've ever heard. So congratulations. It's all downhill from here. I'm getting hacked. Coming from inside the city. Fight the planet! Today on Tackle Hacks, we are joined by Dave Mangum, world-renowned uh tarpon guide among he guides for all sorts of things you do many many things um and uh suffice to say dave's got some experience on the water and i'm sure that uh you could provide us with some excellent tips on on fighting what's arguably one of the the nastiest biggest meanest inshore fish out there that people tend to screw up a lot but um you're also well connected to the fly world do a lot of fly designing the dragon tail Yes, brought yes, that thank you. Too light, <laughs> and where so many of us are so thankful for that, uh, mm -hmm. me in particular, because yep. I don't ever have to tie a game changer anymore. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what the tip is, but um, you're going to actually take us to maybe the off-season a little bit to the vice for your tackle hack instead of on the water. Yeah, you know, the the tip or tackle hack that I'm, I'm going to tell you about is it actually has to do with tarpon flies, so it would be kind of the tarpon season one in the summer, but... The tackle hack that I'm going to tell you about has to do with like a bunny fly. So like a rabbit tail or bunny fly is 
probably the most mm-hmm. commonly used fly for, uh, for tarpon. And a lot of times guys tie in a mono loop and that mono loop is called a snarzel or that's the mm-hmm. old school name of it to keep that bunny Whoa, from fouling really? I've never heard that before. That's what that's called. That mono loop is called a snarzel. Yeah. Yeah. It, it huh. was, you know, because in the beginning they didn't use mono loops. They used the, the center piece of a feather to, instead of the mono. Right. So huh. that's, yeah, they call it a snarzel, but, uh, okay. You know, tying it flat on the hook so it doesn't, you know, just kind of as a loop back there is one of the ways. And one of the other ways is to drive it through the center of the the rabbit strip, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a really good way and an improved way, but there's a better way to do it even than that. So even if you drive it through the center of the, you know, you poke a hole in the rabbit strip, your rabbit can still slip down the lower side of that uh, piece of mono. So you tie an overhand knot in your mono. So first you put some, uh, you know, uh, thread on your hook, then you tie in one end of your snarzel. And I like to burn the, the end of that off. So it makes a little nub. So it doesn't ever come off with a uh, cauterizer. Okay. Then your overhand knots already in this, uh, this piece of mono loop, right? So then you tie your rabbit on kind of check out your spacing, poke all through the rabbit and stick the other end of the mono. So the, so the mono, with the the knot is sitting underneath the rabbit, and that Got that it. rabbit tail actually sits down on the knot. Mm-hmm. Then you lash down the other piece that you poked through the rabbit. So anyway, this just accomplishes the rabbit. It keeps it from ever being able to slip down the bottom side of that mono, um, and you're it's almost impossible to foul that fly. So a fouled fly is a completely useless fly. So when it lands there in front of the tarpon, if it's fouled, it's <laughs> so. <laughs> That's that's my tackle tip for the day. That's a solid one, man. Like you only get one shot at those fish. Yeah, and if you if you tie, like I understand that completely, and I I think that definitely has. I mean, I know some guys that that put that loop in there even for bigger trout flies with bunny tails and things mm-hmm. like that. So if you mm-hmm. if you tie a long rabbit tail in anything, pike flies, pike bunnies. I'm, I always put a loop in a pike bunny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but make sure to put a knot in it. Very simple tip, but. Yeah, that goes a long way, especially like you say with a tarpon. Any fish where, like, the first shot is what counts. Yeah. That's right. Your fly cannot be foul. It's inexcusable. I'm gonna do that. I'm definitely stealing that one for sure. Thank you. Oh, I wish I were tying flies for a spring tarpon trip right now. Oh, that's all dude, I want. If only. Frankly, I wish I had a reason to stockpile flies for any trip right now, salt or fresh, and. It's not that I don't have trips on the horizon, but I, uh, like, I tied a shitload of flies last winter, you know, Mm. like when my kids weren't home every day for months on end (laughs) and stuff. Back in the before times, before the germs. Um, And then I didn't, I didn't really go anywhere in 2020, so I kind of have plenty. It's kind of like a little leg up. Didn't lose very many? No, did not, you know? I, sadly, but it's true, I have been been a slacker when it comes to fly tying for the past few winters because mm. that used to be that used to be one of my winter rituals especially oh, yeah. when i was guiding like i had to i had to restock those boxes and for years i actually had a weekly fly tying night from mm-hmm. like december through may where a bunch of, of friends we would all get together we'd sit around my buddy rob's dining room table and we'd drink a lot of beer and we'd bullshit and we'd tie flies it was kind of like a poker night Right, that was the way I would describe it to people. It's like a poker night, except no one loses. <laughs> it's got the same feel, but but no one comes out being right. like, "Oh God, I can't pay rent this this month." <laughs> like we all, 
we all definitely woke up most days for work the next day with a hangover, but, but yeah. no one was broke and hungover. Right. At, right. At the no very least whammy. you came out. Yeah. At the very least you came out, you had, you had a few more flies than you had the night before and you had a good yeah. time. So yeah. I always liked that. You know, man, so many people have told me I should start a tying night locally and not, I'm not even talking about just the friends thing. Like, you know how a lot of people do this at breweries and stuff yeah. now, like they, and, and I, I, I've thought about it and I could, I could pull it off or, well, I should say I can pull it off once we can all go to a bar again without right. restrictions. Right. right, not, right, right. not so all, much right all now. All of that is, yeah, of, um, of course. But I think they're super cool. And But the handful of times I've actually participated in one of those, I tie very few bugs. I just drink and shoot the shit because tying for me, it's like more of a quiet, unwinding activity at home. You know what I mean? Like the kids are in bed and like I'm just going to mm-hmm. sit quietly with a beer and knock out a few bugs. Um, whereas if I'm, I'm going to a bar, I just want to hang out. Like I, I don't, I don't want to have a task while I'm there. I just want to hang yeah, out. I, but I do see the appeal of these things. I, I think I they're get cool. That. I know? get that. It's definitely it's not the most productive time. Like when you're by yourself and focused, you you do more. But the, what it does for me is it motivates me to sit down and to actually tie flies every yeah. week, which is which yeah. is where I struggle. Which is what I yeah. have not been doing for the last couple of years. So I mean, yeah. I think I think it's more a question of whatever it is that gets you spinning bugs, whether whether you know you're like surrounded by drunkards at some dude's table <laughs> or or you're hiding in a closet from your kids either whatever you got to do to make yourself sit down at the vice and joe is now going to give us a behind the scenes take on a on a relatively new fly pattern that we should all consider getting motivated to tie before it gets warm it's time for this week's end of the line fishy 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 well that's not loud enough bird Everything's bigger in Texas, at least that's what they say, though it doesn't apply at all to the lunch money streamer. To put it in Texas barbecue terms, if a double deceiver was a whole brisket and a regular deceiver was a brisket sandwich, the lunch money would be a single burnt end, just one. But unless you're a vegetarian or something, who's passing up a single smoky, charred, delicious burnt end? Nobody. This tiny minner was designed by full-time commercial tire Matt Bennett of Fly Geek Custom Flies, who lives just outside of Austin. Now, whereas many great streamer patterns have been developed around famed trout and musky fisheries further north, the lunch money was born on the Bass Rivers of Texas Hill Country. But, see, here's the thing. These aren't forgiving rivers, like you'll find in other parts of the country, where you can get away with, say, chucking a big, loud bug and ripping it back until you piss off a fish. Many of Bennett's home waters, like the Llano River, run ultra, ultra clear, making delicate presentations the key to success. Now, couple that with the fact that most of the forage fish in those hill country rivers top out at three inches, and you can see why the big meat is best reserved for the smokehouse around these parts. Several years ago, Umqua picked up the lunch money, and I ended up getting my hands on a whole box of them in shad pattern shortly after they debuted. The design is pretty simple. Small dumbbell eyes provide some drop weight, and the hook rides point up like a clouser minnow. The short tail and collar are made of rabbit strip, the head is laser dub, and tucked into the middle of all of that are four rubber legs. Now, looking at it, you might say, well, why didn't I think of that? Well, because you didn't. Matt Bennett did, and he's a better fly designer than you. And while it may look simple, it's also pretty genius, because Bennett compacted all those elements onto a little size six hook. In fact, the whole package together is about the size of a quarter in your palm. 
And if you tie, you know that's not easy because you have to be strict and sparse with your materials. If you want that little nugget to wiggle just right, and man, does the lunch money dance. When I first got those lunch monies, I was kind of meh about them. But I did thankfully stick a few in my streamer boxes. I was really thankful a couple months later on one of the crystal clear branches of the Shenandoah in West Virginia, because my normal cadre of smallie streamers were getting half-hearted chases and it was driving me insane, okay? And I finally scaled back my leader and put on one of them tiny white lunch monies and those small jaws ate it every time. And then not long after that, during a brown trout mission in the Driftless region of Iowa, I went looking for, quote, the one on the big meat only to pound water for zero eats in two days. And there was one, exactly one of those lunch monies in my box. And just for the sake of changing it up, I tied it on and I caught six browns to 19 inches in an hour. For me, the lunch money is not necessarily replacing old standbys, but it's proven its worth time and time again with finicky or wary fish. And that is, after all, what Bennett designed it for. Even making it ride hook up has a purpose, because you can let this fly drop and flutter with less risk of the point snagging the bottom when it touches down. I'm rarely without some lunch monies these days, and it's fair to say this pattern has definitely generated some buzz across multiple fisheries. But what I also see is people tying lunch monies on bigger hooks. They often scale them up, which it's all well and good, but in my opinion, it's those size six morsel proportions that make the lunch money so damned lethal. Like you wouldn't ask Mini Cooper to build your car on a Yukon frame, would you? Like you couldn't fit a Doberman-sized teacup Yorkie in your Fendi bag. So trust me on this, whether you tie or buy some lunch monies, let the little things be little, because sometimes the little things will get bigger shit done. Well, that just about firms up our depths of the winter episode. If you are cleaning out the freezer ahead of spring, you just sifted through the backstory on the worst and perhaps only ice fishing commercial ever filmed. Probably the last two. Uh, a book by a guy who writes so well that I can forgive him for quitting fishing. A tip on how to keep your tail wagging in the face of hungry tarpon. And a fly that a class bully might beat you up and steal. Thanks again to Matthew McConaughey for coming on. And hey, if you need Matthew McConaughey for something, like a recording, uh, we suggest you look up at Paradenoia on Instagram. As always, hit us up and let us know how you're surviving the cruelest months. Send us some bar nominations, sale bin items. Maybe use winter as an excuse to dig through your old photo albums and find awkward fishing pics for us to make fun of. Send all of that stuff to bent at themeateater.com. Use the hashtags Degenerate Angler and Bent Podcast if you're wasting some time on social media, either because you're in a pop-up, sitting over a slow <laughs> bite, or because you're stuck at home not fishing because it's cold. Yeah, and we'll talk to you again in March when the weather will still probably suck and you won't start catching fish until the last few days right before April. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. 
Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.